Thanks very much indeed, guys. Do uh, keep uh, Exodus open in front of you um, as we're going to be uh, looking in detail at those words now. Let me uh, pray as we come to God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're the God who speaks today and that because you're the unchanging God, uh, your character is the same as it was when you spoke first through Moses in the book of Exodus. So we pray that you'd speak to us, your people today. Pray you'd speak to us of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray you'd speak to us of what it means to be your people. Pray you'd speak to us of your great love to us in him. For his name's sake. Amen. Now, Christianity, I think, looks increasingly weak in the West. Certainly that's the the message, isn't it, of the media. I think Christianity looks numerically weak. So let's uh, be honest, there's quite a lot of room left in this building this evening, isn't there? Uh, about 7% of the country approximately are in some sort of church on a Sunday, but probably only about 3% are in a church that might be described as taking the Bible seriously, a sort of evangelical church. Christianity looks pretty financially weak, so the Bishop of London not too long ago was appealing to the government to help the poor old Church of England out looking after its buildings. Because with all these buildings across the country, with uh, grade two or grade one listing, they just couldn't afford to keep them going. Uh, Christianity looks intellectually weak. Well, it's good old Richard Dawkins bashing Christians near the Oxford Baptist, an atheist with another TV show. Or whether it's just the simple fact that I think now if you go into the streets, the majority of people in this country presume that evolutionary theory is a fact and that science has proved that Christianity is no longer relevant. They don't know why that's a fact, but they presume that is the truth. Whereas a few years ago, the majority of people in a census in this country would have said they were Christian. Christianity is weak in our country. Uh, Certainly Christianity looks morally weak in our country. So those who are trying to live in the way that the Bible says increasingly seem persecuted for it. Uh, There have been a number of cases recently, haven't there, of people losing their jobs, often with local government, because they've been unwilling to participate, say, in homosexual couples adopting children, or civil partnerships or same-sex marriages. To live by Christian morality means that you can no longer be someone who's an accepted part of our country. You cannot hold to British values and what the Bible teaches, it would appear. It seems that Christianity is in decline. We can look back to those great and glorious years, uh, the years, say, of the evangelical revival where Wesley and Whitfield preached to thousands upon thousands of miners outside Bristol and they, they came flocking forward to follow Jesus. Or the years of the great London preacher Charles Hannon Spurgeon when the Metropolitan Tabernacle would have 10,000 people in there on a Sunday and he'd be preaching away to them. But today it just seems rather different. Even saying you're a Christian can get people to look at you rather strangely. Now it must have felt much the same for the people of God at the beginning of the book of Exodus. You know, things had been good in Egypt in the past for them. Uh, Joseph, their ancestor, he'd been made prime minister by Pharaoh, and he'd invited his family to come down and to join him. Uh, Pharaoh, the king, had given the, the choicest land in the country to farm at Gershon, and it really looked like God was now fulfilling his promise to their forefather, Abraham, and the promise that he was going to take 
Abraham's descendants and make them into a great nation and, and through them bless the nations of the world. Sure, sure, they don't have the land that God had mentioned in that promise, but they're enjoying a few cucumbers by the Nile and life seems to be on the up. And then we read this in Exodus 1, verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. See, things are beginning to look grim in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus for God's people. And what we're going to see over the coming weeks is how God rescues a people who are an oppressed minority in the world. How he brings them to enjoy relationship with him as he dwells amongst them himself. Now, now before we get the intricate details of the book of Exodus, I just want to give a, a brief big picture. Because sometimes if, if you zoom in on the details without knowing the big picture, first of all, you can get entirely the wrong idea. It's the same with the, the Bible's storyline. And so over the coming weeks, as we look at the book of Exodus, one of the things I'd love you to do is to read Exodus for yourselves. It may well be that your reading will help you with the preaching. It may well be miraculously the preaching will actually help you with your reading. And together we'll get a better grip on Exodus by the end of our series. Because there are times during this series when we're covering big chunks of the book at once. So where are we going to go over the coming few weeks? Well, Exodus as a book really can divide into three parts. The first 18 chapters, 1 to 18, are about the God who redeems his people. If you know the history of Exodus, it's there that you'll find Moses raised up as leader. You'll find the great events of the plagues and the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, God taking his people out of Egypt. And by the time we get to chapter 18, when Moses meets his father-in-law, Rule, or Jethro, we'll find that again and again what Jethro is repeating to Moses is, God has rescued his people. That's what the first 18 chapters are about. Then chapter 19 to 24 is about how God relates to his people, or how he rules them. Because what happens is God brings his people back to Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, Horeb, and he tells them through Moses how they are to relate to him. He's brought them to himself, and now he says, this is what our covenant relationship looks like. A covenant is a, a solemn promise in the Bible between two parties. And God's covenant with his people here contains things like the Ten Commandments, probably the, the bit of the Bible that people think they know pretty well, but probably can only remember about three of them, and two of those they get wrong. The Ten Commandments, but then also how they're to live in the light of them. So, so in 19 to 24, we're going to see how God relates to his people. He rules them by his word. And then the end of the book of Moses is slightly odd, because we have 15 chapters on how to build a tent. I mean, we've just had massive dramatic events, people dying, darkness, frogs, seas parting, and then 15 chapters on the tabernacle. But actually, it is the tabernacle that is the highlight of the point book of Exodus. Because at the tabernacle is where God dwells at the heart of his people. Where the, the God who made the whole universe comes and is accessible to the human beings he's made. 
He is at the heart of the camp where he goes with his people through thick and thin. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 29, we'll see that God says, the purpose of me redeeming this people is that I might dwell amongst them, that they might enjoy relationship with me and I might enjoy relationship with them. But that's a relationship they make a mess of pretty quickly, which is why we need two sets of instructions about how to build God's tent. So there's an overview of the book of Exodus. That's where we're going uh, over this term, over the next 12 or 13 weeks or so. But let's begin at the beginning with chapters 1 and 2. And the first thing that we see at the beginning of chapter 1 is this, that God is the God who fulfills his promises, who fulfills his promises. Uh, Have a look with me at Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. We're picking up from the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob had 12 sons. And if you remember, they've gone to Egypt to weather out a famine. At that stage, apart from Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, superb economic management that, that saves really the nation of Egypt, we don't really see them having too much of an effect on the local population. But that begins to change Look at verse 5. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. You see, at the beginning, there are not many of them. But God is working to fulfill his promises. He promised to Abraham that his descendants would be a great nation. And so look what the Lord does in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Do you see how the writer's rubbing it in? Moses is rubbing it in for us. Exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, so numerous. It's about four ways of saying exactly the same thing. There were lots of Israelites pretty quickly. And the new king, he's not too keen on this new, large and powerful ethnic minority in the land. So he decides to oppress them. A bit of slavery. That should keep the the birth rate down and keep them under control. And so we read in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. I wonder if you can see that the repeated word in these verses. Look at verse 7 and verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 20. Repeated words are quite a good way to to flag up what you're wanting to say. Do you see what the word is? Numerous. More and more and more Israelites. In fact, the Egyptians, the more they oppress them, the worse it gets. Look at verse 14. They work them ruthlessly at the end of verse 13, and then verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Ruthlessly oppressed, more numerous. Even more ruthlessly oppressed, even more numerous. You see, persecution doesn't stop God, he's going to fulfill his promises. He said to the Israelites, you're going to be a great nation. So he sets about making them a great nation. 
and no earthly king and no earthly ruler will stop his purposes. God will make a great people. By, by the way, if you're, if you're here tonight and, and you're not yet a Christian, one of the things that I think the Bible would want you to realize is that God's always good to his word. He has always kept his promises. And, and therefore, what the Bible says, that, that one day God will bring a great people to himself, a, a multitude that no one can count, it's going to happen. You see, the Israelites are our spiritual ancestors. When we read the Old Testament, we're reading the history of the same God as we worship today through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the promises made to Abraham, they were never finally fulfilled to the Jewish nation as a people. They were fulfilled through the descendant of Abraham, who would bless the whole world, the person of Jesus. And he's the one now who is making a great nation of people. A nation gathered from every tribe and every tongue and every ethnic group. A nation gathered together because they say, we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and King. And do you know what Jesus promised about the people he's gathering? He says this in in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He said, I will build my church. In other words, I'm going to do it. Nothing's going to stop me gathering my people to myself. Just as the Israelites become more numerous under persecution, so the church of Jesus Christ grows, often under persecution. So since uh, Mao Zedong declared the People's Republic of China in 1949, Christians have been systematically persecuted in China. At that stage, the the first Christian missionaries, the the missionaries had to flee from China. Uh, China has had a strike-hard policy. It's presented by the the government over the years as a crackdown on criminals, but really it's been used to crack down upon the church. Uh, There are more Christians in detention because of the strike-hard policy than, than any other single group in China. Uh, Church property is confiscated. Bibles are removed. Oh, you can go to an official church, but you can't go to one that isn't officially approved. And yet, do you know that there are some estimates that now there are 100 million Christians in China today? Can you imagine that, 100 million Christians? That is like the entire population of the United Christian all or United Kingdom. Well, it would be the United Christian, wouldn't it? The United Kingdom, all being Christian. You walk out, everyone's a Christian. Everyone you meet on the tube, praise you, Jesus, praise Jesus. You're all Christians. But not just that, you could chuck in Belgium and Holland as well, and probably a bit of France. Everyone there a Christian. You go to Zeebrugge. Oh, hello, you follow Jesus. I follow Jesus too, isn't he great? Everywhere you go, 100 million Christians. And the thing is that the harder they persecute the church in China, the quicker it appears to grow. It stands despite pastors being imprisoned despite people being threatened and the church that grows the fastest is actually the underground unofficial church where the persecution is the harshest you see persecution doesn't stop king jesus god fulfills his promises he's ruler of heaven and earth he does just whatever he wants ruthless more numerous There's no legislation that's going to stop Jesus. 
There's no cultural change. There's no new idea that's going to stop God fulfilling his promises. In fact, the countries where there's often greater persecution are the countries often where the church seems to grow more radically. Uh, Did you know what the church in China is praying for Christians in this country? Very often they're praying that we'd be persecuted. Why? Because in the fires of persecution, the dross of our self-interest and comfortable introspection is burnt off and you come to depend on Jesus more, love him more, and therefore serve him more wholeheartedly. You see, God fulfills his promises. So if you're sitting here this evening and thinking, do you know I'm the only Christian at work? It's just hard work. Is it worth keeping going? Yeah. God fulfills his promises. He is going to bring a great multitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he could not be stopped in Exodus 1, so he cannot be stopped in Chessington in the 21st century. He will do it. I will build my church. Now, to to know that and to keep going, we need to know the second thing is true that Exodus 1 and 2 shows us. It's this. God protects his people. God protects his people. Because when Pharaoh's first effort to, to limit the Israelite birth rate through hard labor doesn't succeed, he decides to try a bit of genocide instead. Uh, look down at verse 15 with me. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepara and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, see if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Our translation, by the way, takes a bit of the pain out of this, a bit of the heartache. The real literal translation is, if you see that it is a son, kill it. But if you see it's a daughter, let it live. People are never just babies. We're born into relationship. It's sons that are murdered, or daughters that are let live. Beloved children. It's unlikely, by the way, that there were just two Hebrew midwives for the whole nation of Israelites. We find that when they leave Egypt, there are about a million of them, so these two will be run off their feet. No, it's much more likely these two are given as representatives to show us how we should respond when we're being threatened as one of God's people. Because the key is who are you going to fear? Did you see that in verse 17? The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the sons live. Now, fear of God is not like fear of Pharaoh. Fear of this foreign king is based on your, his ability to do you harm. You're afraid for your own safety. Whereas fear of God in the Old Testament is more literally to treat God as God. To realize that he rules all things. To realize that there is no one more powerful than him. To to know that all who set themselves up against God are frauds and fools. To, To know that pretending to have power in the face of Almighty God is a ridiculous thing to do. But the fear of God in the Old Testament is not just to know that about God as the powerful one. It's actually a relational term. It's to know this God personally. To know that you are one of his people. 
to know that he loves you and that he is for you, that he is your God and you are his child. And these midwives, they fear God. And their fear is well-placed because look how God protects his people. Verse 18, the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, why have you done this? Why have you let the sons live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, I don't think, by the way, this is a lesson on how to lie in a pleasing way to God. Or I don't think we really even know whether whether they're speaking the truth. Perhaps it was that Hebrew women had particularly short labors. All that out brick making meant that they delivered their children super quick. But these verses aren't here to teach us that either. They're actually to show us that these women were under real threat. Pharaoh wasn't mucking around. And look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased. And what did they become? Ever more numerous. And the midwives themselves are blessed personally. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. You see, blessing under persecution comes as you nail your colors to the mast of the person of Jesus Christ, as you fear God and trust him, and God protects his people. Do you know how Matthew 16, 18 goes on? You probably do. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, or the gates of hell will not overcome it. See, Jesus promises that No power or plan for evil will be able to overcome his people. Not even Satan himself, for all his efforts, will be ever able to take God's people from him. Those who fear God can never be separated from him. That's what Paul reminds us of at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that that was the experience of these midwives. That though they're part of an oppressed minority, though they risked the anger and basically the brutal nature of a powerful dictator, nothing could get between them and the God they feared. Nothing could stop him blessing them. Fear is such a powerful emotion, isn't it? It's probably one one of the most powerful motivators in the human psyche is the emotion of fear. It controls so many of our decisions. You know, we're in that situation, we're just afraid of not fitting in, so we'll just keep quiet. Or we're afraid of, of not being able to pay the bills, so, so we just stay at work longer and, and just don't quite have enough time for our family. Or that fear of not being loved. Or, or simply FOMO, fear of missing out, that... that we're going to in some way not enjoy life if, if we really nail our colors to the master of Jesus. And when our lives are controlled by fear, 
Well, the result is that, that we go through life desperately trying to navigate a world that is out of our control, getting increasingly anxious, unable to, to even sort out our own fears. But fear of the God who is for you, fear of the God who, Romans says, is so for you that he did not spare his own son, fear of that God who so loves you, fear of that God who not just runs your life but runs the whole show of the universe, fear of that God can actually change your life forever because he is the God who protects his people. Now, I think we need to know that more and more. And more and more as we fit less and less into the culture around us. Oh, I'll show at the moment, probably the worst danger we have for speaking out about Jesus is, is maybe being ostracized at work or socially. Potentially, maybe in the future, we could spend a short time in a comfortable British jail. But we do fit in less, don't we? And yet, of course, tonight across the world, we don't need to be reminded there are people who are choosing to fear God rather than fear the people who are literally saying they're going to take their lives. Every night that you and I go to bed safe and secure, men, women, and children around the world choose to fear God and to die for the name of Jesus. You see, fearing God doesn't mean necessarily we'll be physically protected. It means, though, that we'll be protected by God from the far, far more dangerous thing, from abandoning the one who loves us and gave his son for us, from falling away from him. Or we might not be protected from the sword, but we will be protected from leaving our loving Heavenly Father. And the reason that we know that's true Well, because he's provided a rescuer for us. And it's the last thing we see here in Exodus 1 and 2. Because chapter 2 is all about God providing a rescuer. He's fulfilling his promises. He's unstoppable. He's going to protect his people. But how is he going to get them out of Egypt? Well, he provides a rescuer. Now, in the Bible, you know that someone's important if you have a long story about their birth. Especially if it's a miraculous birth. And Moses is miraculously preserved in the middle of this plot by Pharaoh to kill the infant boys. Uh, He's special, Moses. His mother can see it. Do you see that in chapter 2 and verse 2? It says at the end of the verse, When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile we're not told what Moses's mum thought would happen with the basket but we are actually given a clue here because do you know the word translated basket here if you've got your high viz specs on you'll be able to see from the footnote is translated back in Genesis 6 as ark it's the same word as used for the boat that Noah built And actually, just like the ark, the basket is coated in pitch. You see, this is a very, very small boat for rescuing one person in. And I guess Moses' mum would have been horrified, therefore, at the approach of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Do you see verse 5, along she comes. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down from the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. Uh, surely this is it. Surely this queen, potential future queen, will share her father's murderous intent. But look at verse 6 with me. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. There's a delicious irony here, isn't there? Pharaoh is desperate to kill off the Israelite boys, while God is using his daughter to protect the child who's going to grow into the man he's going to use to rescue all the Israelites from the grasp of Pharaoh. You can imagine Mrs. Moses going along with her pushchair and uh, them calling out the Israelite women. Who's that? Who's your little girl? What's, what's she called? And Mrs. Fair, Mrs. Moses saying, actually, do you know what? Moses. That, that, that's, it's my son. My son. The only son just about of his generation to live. You see, God's going to rescue his people. And so he raises up a rescuer. That uh, is Moses' desire to be a rescuer e- even before he gets his commission from God. Do you see he can't help himself? Look what he does in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, nah. Whether that's right or wrong, doesn't matter as much as here is Moses rescuing his oppressed people. Not, not that they're very keen on being rescued. Do you see that in verse 13? The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. When he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, in the very next chapter we're going to see next week, God makes Moses ruler and judge over them. That's not a role that they're very willing to accept as we progress through the book of Exodus. They grumble and they complain and then they outright reject Moses as God's rescuer. In the book of Acts, uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, explains what's going on here. He says this in his speech in Acts 7.24, talking of Moses. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. But but that's the thing about Moses. He just can't help being a rescuer. Even when he flees in fear of Pharaoh to, to the land of Midian, he comes across seven daughters being intimidated by a well. And what does he do? Verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw wet, uh, to the water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. Moses has been rescued to be a rescuer. God has preserved his life. God gives him the desire to stand for his people. God takes him out of Egypt 
God even then uses him to rescue other nations. Here are Midian priests and his daughters, one of whom becomes Zipporah, Moses' wife. Yet Moses is still restless. You see, he knows he's God's rescuer and he's not at home. Did you see that in the name of his firstborn son, verse 22? Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershon, which means I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now Moses knows that God has other things for him to do. Midian is not his home. He's looking forward to the day when he will be one of God's people living under God's rule in God's land. You see, God provides a rescuer. Just as in chapter 2, Moses foreshadows the experience of the people of Israel, he also foreshadows Jesus, as David pointed out, our final rescuer. Jesus is protected from the murderous intentions of a king, King Herod, at his birth. Jesus is rejected by his own people, even though he came to save them. Jesus has come to take us out of slavery. Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery far worse to sin. Our own selfishness and denial of the God who loves us. And slavery to the devil's lies that really we are better off running our lives and our world ourselves. And Jesus is going to take us home. Home to heaven. To the new heavens and the new earth. To be with God to be in the place where God will dwell with his people. As we study Moses throughout the book of Exodus, we'll find that the pattern of his life is perfected in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as God's going to rescue his people in the Exodus, he offers us full and final rescue through his son, Jesus. Rescue from the grip of sin and death and judgment. Now, we're all looking for a rescuer. I mean, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, well, you are looking for something to rescue you or to save you. Your hope is somewhere. If it's not in in the Lord God and the person of Jesus Christ, well, what are the other things that the world is looking to rescue? Maybe you're looking to humanity, the the, the qualities of the human race. Maybe maybe despite our history, we're going to pull together somehow as a human race and we will establish peace and prosperity on earth. Maybe it's human nature you're looking to. Maybe it's the great thinkers of our age. Maybe, maybe we can come up with a, a political system that, that really will benefit the majority and not like all those other political systems where they've started out altruistically looking at trying to be for the sake of the majority but have just ended up feathering the nests of the people at the top of the pile. Maybe you're looking to philosophy and, and the great ideas. Maybe you're just looking to yourself and you can knuckle down and make your million and save your own little corner of the universe. But we're all looking to a rescuer unless you're totally content with your life and the world as it is now. We're looking to something to save us. And I'd want to encourage you that actually it's great to look at the person of Jesus Christ because he is the only one, the only one offers to rescue you not because of who you are but despite who you are the the only one who offers to rescue you not just from life in this world but from the death that will inevitably end it and I can tell you now you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive the only one who will take you home to be with God
But, but for those of us here who are looking to Jesus as our rescuer, well, you will have recognized as we've looked at Exodus 1 and 2, there's a familiarity about the life of the Israelites and the life of Moses. It's actually the life of the Lord Jesus as well. It's a life of struggle and a life of suffering as one of God's people as we look to God who is in control and for us and knowing that one day he'll take us home to be with him. We know the Bible teaches us that that God's using everything in our lives for our good, but I guess that Moses didn't particularly feel like that. Not not when he was rejected by his countrymen. I don't expect he, he felt like God was doing a great job as he fled to Midian. He certainly didn't feel like that as he settled down there. But God has a plan, and Moses is very much a part of it. Look at verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's not when God remembers he's forgotten, that he's sort of up in heaven going, oh my goodness me, promises to Abraham totally slipped my mind, I better, better do something about that. Now God remembering his covenant in the Old Testament is him acting according to his word. And here, as he hears the cries of his people, he responds according to his promise to bless them. And the same God has made precious promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's promised that he'll never leave us and forsake us. He's promised that he will take us through life as he took the midwives through life. But more importantly, he's promised that one day his son, his great rescuer, the one he has provided, will come home, come and take us home to be with him. You see, we know God has provided a rescuer because we can look at the life of the Lord Jesus and the death of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the ascension of the Lord Jesus to heaven and know that everything is in place for the return of the Lord Jesus when he will finally take us home. It's why Paul writes this in Philippians. He says in Philippians 3, talking about our restlessness, our sense that this just can't be all there is, as believers. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him will bring everything under his control. He will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. See, God provides a rescuer. God has provided the rescuer. And whatever you are experiencing at the moment, whether you're one of those in our fellowship who's going through the pain of physical suffering day by day, whether your heart is aching because of the relational turmoil in your life, maybe aching because you can see how you've contributed to it, whether you're struggling in terms of employment and you're just feeling that life is bearing down upon you, you need to know that God has provided a rescuer. And what do we do? We wait eagerly for a savior from there. Because none of the other saviors will work. It might surprise you to know, but politics isn't going to save us. 
Economics is not going to save us. Education won't save the world. Science, it ain't going to save us. Healthcare won't save us. And philosophy won't save us. But Jesus will. He'll come and he'll take us home to dwell with God forever amongst a multitude that no one can number whom God has protected and taken to himself. God is the great rescuer who fulfills every promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see in Exodus.